For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. The holidays are supposed to be a time of joy, but that may not be what you're experiencing if you're missing someone who's passed away. Our guest on this episode is grief crisis consultant Harold Ivan Smith, who's written many books on grief, including A Decembered Grief, Living with Loss While Others Are Celebrating. Harold, thank you so much for joining us and trying to help our listeners get through what may be a tough holiday season for them. Sure. And, you know, for some people, it's almost like an anticipatory grief. Uh, There's been a diagnosis. There's been someone is the remission has ended. So it's just like, will they be alive to Christmas or New Year's? But for others, it's a sense of that surprise. And I have often said in a split second, your ho, ho, ho can become an oh, 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 that quickly. And I experienced that working in the funeral profession. Uh, It's just suddenly those things change without our permission. And tell us about how you came to be a grief specialist. Really, when my grandfather died on uh, Christmas Eve, when I was 11 years old. And, you know, in those days, in a rural Indiana where he lived, everything closed up. So there was nothing open. Uh, I just remember it was my mother's father, and she was just so overwhelmed by the loss. And, you know, it's odd. All I can remember of the funeral home is that it's dark in my memory. I can remember a lot of details, but it just, and, you know, you're 10 years old, 11 years old, and you're sitting there, and your presents are home, and we didn't open presents that year. It was just like when you go back to school in January, well, how was your Christmas? My grandfather died. Mm -hmm. I think that was a critical moment because what happened in that little rural town, my grandfather, for whom I'm named, best friend owned the funeral home. And yes, we were sad with my grandfather, who was 80, dying. But that Christmas day, three young boys who had graduated from the high school in the spring and joined the military, came home from boot camp, and one of their parents gave them a new Chevy. And they left the road at over 100 miles an hour, and those three young men were killed instantly. And suddenly I learned, yes, our grief was horrendous. A person's grandfather should not die on Christmas Eve, but neither should three recent high school graduates either. And that whole community, was just sucked into this deep, deep pain. And I learned that there are some gradations uh, in grief uh, that happen during the holidays where it's anticipated or it's totally unanticipated. It makes it very difficult. 
What advice do you have for people who are dealing with a new loss this holiday season or if they have a loved one who is very ill and they know it's going to be their last Christmas or Hanukkah being around? Yes. Well, I tell them to be very aware that uh, in, in the first case, it can't be Christmas or Hanukkah as usual. There are individuals who believe we've got to go straight forward, buck up, suck up. We're going to do this. And I tell them, oh, this is not going to work. This is not going to work. With the hospice patients, and I've worked a lot, and I'm getting ready to speak to hospices next week in South Carolina, I always remind them, yes, it may well look like it's their last Christmas, but it may not be. So to say, what can we do to make this Christmas good, this Hanukkah good, this New Year's good? And part of it is about making decisions. Yes, the holiday cannot be like it was, but it can be like it is going to be. And I tell some people, you know, maybe the year to totally do something different. For example, if you've had a big family, loud family gathering on Christmas Eve, kind of the potluck, this might be the year to go out for a nice, quiet, early soup and salad dinner. Uh, if you've gone for a big meal in a restaurant, this might be the year to have a buffet at home. So it, it's not like you're going to change the holidays forever. It's saying this year we need to make a good decision. For some people, it's complicated by the presence of young children. I spent uh, Thanksgiving with three under four years of age. And wow, was that a learning curve. <laughs> and, uh, but yet I also learned that those children are very perceptive. You know, we, we assume, oh, children are too, they're too young to understand. I go, no, no, they're not. Uh, they are very much aware. They may not understand what's happening, but they realize my mom is crying a lot. My dad is sad. Uh, and they're trying to figure that out to the extent of their knowledge. Um, and so it can be very different. And there's always someone who, you know, wants to make it, we're going to do this. It also becomes tragic when someone is trying to get through their grief by alcohol by anesthetizing their pain. And I tell them that's always a bad decision. I'm not making a decision about drinking. I'm just saying, you know, whatever you do that distracts you from your grief, Bill Warden, the great therapist, says it's going to complicate it. And I often tell people, now, the decisions you make in December will have January consequences. So I've seen some people that, you know, say the death happens in November uh, they're going to have this spectacular Christmas, just go out, and especially if they go, we'll make it up to the kids. And I go, you know, that's not always a wise idea. Why do you want to do that? And maybe it's much easier to have a very mild holiday. Uh, but also, you know, I, I remind people, the holiday is about remembering. It is about not forgetting uh, the individual that died. Uh, there are families and groups and partners and friends that go, whatever you do, don't say the name. Don't set the, say the name. That'll upset everyone. Uh -huh. And I think it's not saying the name mm -hmm. that becomes so good. And for some to go, well, if they forgot dad, they'll forget me when I go. Yeah. 
And it's about saying, you know, we're sad. I suggest things like, okay, before we have dessert on the holiday, we're going to go around and everybody tell a favorite memory of the deceased. And, you know, sometimes they're sad, but sometimes you get to laughing or someone says, no, wait a minute. I was there and it did not quite happen that way. <laughs> and so you, you and that's that presence. I also urge people if there's a tree and I urge people do some kind of decoration, because if you go no de- decorations everywhere you look in your home or your condo or your apartment, you're going to be reminded last year there was a tree there. Last year there was a wreath, all those kind of dimensions. So, you don't have to decorate all out. One widow I worked with uh, came to a wonderful conclusion. She put up a tree and strung white lights on it, but no ornament. And the absence of ornament said this year is different. Uh-huh. Next year, we'll go back to what we've done in previous years. But this year. Now, what can be complicated, too, is if the deceased was a person that dearly loved Christmas. Mm-hmm. or loved Hanukkah or loved New Year's, they were just in the height of glory, whether it was cooking, baking, uh, buying, wrapping. Uh, that's the way it was with my sister, her death. I think it hit me much harder. She's older uh, because she was the one that wanted everyone to have a gift to open. Everybody had to have a gift to open. And she thought there ought to be all this food and boy, how do you sort that out to go, uh, she's gone. And what do we do? And unfortunately, in my family, uh, we have not been together uh, as a family since my father's death. Um, my father was the glue that held everything together. And uh, after he died, everybody kind of did their own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't be, you know, there's always this person... You want to be the Christmas magician. Mm-hmm. They're going to wave the magic wand and everything's going to be wonderful. And a lot of your listeners may have had that thrust on them. I am the Christmas magician. I have to make everything work. And it can be strange, you know, when grandma dies and she was the one that knew sizes, colors, and brands. Oh, right. Granddad has no earthly idea what they want, or and he's just like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And, um, you know, one man told me, a widower, sobbing, he finally, I said, well, can you tell me what exactly is wrong? He said, yes. My wife did all the inside decorations, and I did the outside, but she made the inside of our house look so beautiful. And I cannot remember ever telling her how much I appreciated that and how much I loved that. Oh, wow. I just wish I had a memory all those years of sometimes saying, darling, you, you just made everything look so special. And uh, now it may have been that he had, and in his grief, he just could not remember. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we need somebody else to jog our memory and say, well, don't you remember the year because those kind of questions get us going and open us to conversations. And sometimes we need just someone to kind of, I call it a reboot the memory or bring the memory into focus. 
Uh, it could be the year the turkey uh, pan, someone dropped the turkey pan and the turkey skidded across the kitchen floor. <laughs> So you ordered Kentucky Fried Chicken. And everybody <laughs> kept going, I thought we were having turkey. Well, we're having Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> and, you know, it, 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 it's small things that sometimes, uh, my mother, for example, every year, I, know she, I knew she was going to say, honey, I wish you had kept your money for something you wanted or needed. And I, you know, I never could break through to her mother. This was my decision. <laughs> I wanted you to have it. And then my sister took up that line. You should have kept your money. And I go, is this because you're now like Mama Junior or because you really believe that? <laughs> and uh, it, it's, a, you know, families, we bring all these expectations. Uh, in my family, there used to be this quote, do you expect me to be a mind reader? <laughs> and it got very confusing, particularly during the holidays. I work with what a lot of what are called Jerry Springer families. Uh-huh. I know you don't have those in the Bay Area, where you probably <laughs> heard, but I like to say there are two types of families, those who have been on Jerry Springer and those who haven't been on yet. <laughs> and something about the holidays, who's not talking to each other? Uh, I remember one year, the last year our family was together, there were some in the kitchen who would not come into the living room. Bring my presents out here. I'll open them out here. And you go, can't we just set aside that? And sometimes you go, what's the beef? Well, I don't know. What do you mean you don't? I, I don't know what they're upset about, something that's happened. And, uh, and then you have people who, well, let's be on our best behavior. You know, this could be dad's last Christmas. So everybody be on best behavior. Everybody's kind of walking around. And, you know, it, it takes a lot of energy to pretend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just need to say, wow, this is a tough, tough Christmas it, or Hanukkah. New, and, you know, and I'm stunned by a number of families where the New Year's is really organized around bowl games and the TV is on from early in the morning to late at night. And you always need to confine people. They're either in the bathroom or they're in front of the TV watching a ball game. And and so then when you suddenly go, well, what are we going to do for New Year's? Um, and for some, and the other thing is that what we're doing this year, there are anniversaries or there are weddings. So we and my family are having a wedding the 27th of December. And I've kind of said to myself, well, I know I got invited. I wonder who else got invited. So I, I think there could be a little surprise at the wedding. And, where's so-and-so? Well, they weren't invited. Um, and you can't always predict families. You cannot predict what they're going to do. Our Nobody Told Me conversation continues as we help spread the word about our sponsor, Blissy. Blissy, spelled B-L-I-S-S-Y, makes all kinds of products to help you get a great night's sleep. 
I've been sleeping on a Blissey Mulberry Silk pillowcase this past week, and it's made a wonderful difference in the quality of my sleep. Me too. Seriously, because silk is what's best for your hair and your skin. It reduces frizz, tangles, and prevents breakage. That's because it keeps the moisture in your hair and keeps your skincare products and natural moisture on your skin, unlike cotton does. With the Blissey pillowcase, you can say goodbye to wrinkly skin in the morning and wake up with healthier and shinier hair you can be proud of. I love I love the way my skin looks and the way my hair feels after sleeping on a Blissey pillowcase. And I love the fact that Blissey's pillowcases regulate temperature, keeping you cool at night. The entire pillow is cool to the touch. No more sweaty nights spent tossing and turning as you search for the cool side of your pillow. Blissey pillowcases are made of 100% mulberry silk, which is naturally hypoallergenic, so you can sleep more comfortably without itching or rashes. And unlike other silk pillowcases, Blissey's are machine machine washable and durable. With the holidays just around the corner, why not give the gift of better sleep? And what better gift could you give? And Blissey products come in gift-ready packaging. Blissey is the 2021 Good Housekeeping winner for Best Bedding, so you can rest assured that you're giving a great gift. Everybody loves them. They have a ton of different prints and colors, and they make great gifts because there's an option for literally anyone, even kids. They have over 1 million raving fans, and you could be Next. Try now risk-free for 60 nights at blissy.com slash nobody and get an additional 30% off. That's B-L-I-S-S-Y dot com slash nobody and use code nobody to get an additional 30% off. Your skin and hair will thank you. Sleep better with Blissy and use code nobody to get an additional 30% off at blissy.com slash nobody. And Blissy has set up a great web page for our listeners. So if you're looking for a better night's sleep for yourself or someone on your gift list, check out the wonderful products and fantastic deals at blissy.com slash nobody. I'm wondering what advice you have for people who are maybe feeling envious during the holidays of others who have that parent or grandparent or sibling or, or other relative um, while you're grieving the loss of yours. Well, that's an excellent question. Uh, you know, one of the losses we don't talk about is the people who expected a first baby at Christmas or they were you know, going to announce we are pregnant. Mm -hmm. And that loss, you know, and how do you respond to individuals by saying whatever the loss is, it's a real loss? Uh, I would suspect some of your listeners either have lost a job or lost a colleague or there are rumors about what's going to happen next year financially. And so it's being cognizant of all these types of losses. Sometimes we call them secondary losses because they're not an actual person. Uh, and it's not a person that's died, but it's a tradition that's died. They're also a very amazing losses. People who got married this year, who have to decide which set of in-laws are we going to this year. Mm -hmm. And that means somebody's going to have, oh, the bride and groom recently married are going to be there. But it means somewhere else, someone is really absent. The other thing with older adults, I encourage people, say it now. Say it now. Uh, tomorrow, I'm ordering a poinsettia for my 96-year-old aunt. She had just knows that I love her. I love her dearly. And that she can count on that poinsettia coming up to her door. Uh, 
she the florist laughs that she always says, oh, I know who this is from. Well, you haven't seen the card yet. Oh, <laughs> I know who this is from. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she's told, asked me, why am I still here? And I just said, well, the good Lord is not through with you yet. And uh, she's the most amazing woman. At 96, she still goes to the nursing home to sing because those old people need help. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. I just kind of go, and Aww. Ellen, you're 96. But that's her philosophy of life. And she's not had an easy life. But she made a decision. Yep, I wish my oldest son were here. He died. Wish my husband were here. He died. But here's who I have left. And this is how I make these holidays special. Uh, She doesn't cook anymore. Doesn't do the baking and that sort of thing like she once did. Uh, But nevertheless, it's a time of gathering. Uh, and uh, that poinsettia will be there. And I'm sure she will call and say, I got your poinsettia. And, you know, uh, I don't have a feeling that there's anything left unsaid between us. Mm-hmm. Um, I do wonder how she got all the happiness genes in the family. She got them all. <laughs> and the rest of us just got, you know, not much left that crumb. What, why has it been in your experience that some people are better at handling grief than others? I think uh, two things. I'm a huge believer in uh, children being involved in grief rituals. For example, uh, last Monday night, this very time last week, I was uh, speaking for a large funeral home's memorial service. And I always invite people, bring your children. Well, to, well, I don't think that's appropriate for children. And this uh, choral group sang this wonderful song. And nobody knew whether to applaud or not. But out of the back came this little girl's voice. Yay! <laughs> and everybody broke into laughter, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, and then afterwards, I met the little girl. And I just said, I am so glad you came. And I said to the parent and the grandmother, I'm so glad you brought her. Um, We have those experiences. And for some families, they have shielded children. So there are no real antecedents in their memory or experience. There's a wonderful Catholic church in Kansas City where I formerly lived that always reserved the back row, the back pew in their church for strangers. And they invited parish families, bring your children to a stranger's funeral so they can see what's going to happen. So when one of their family die, this is not all a surprise. The other thing is that, you know, we are become so buck up, suck up, be strong, just be really strong. And we're afraid of losing control. Uh, I so often in the groups I ran for 18 years in a hospital in Kansas City, I'd have a person start crying. They said, I'm sorry, sorry. And I go, excuse me, you're, tell me what you're sorry for. You're sorry for being human. I said, I, I don't you think you need to be sorry for that. Tears are the way we punctuate grief, just like a period or an exclamation or a question mark. And what we need are people to give us permission to grieve who just really say, you know, it's the holidays. These must be very tough for you and um, and and really care. Uh, you know, we often use that, how are you doing? Uh, 
And one of my friends that lost a 17-year-old son told me, he said, you can set the clock. That phrase, how are you doing, is going to change to a compliment. Oh, you're doing so well. Mm. And then they disappear. And uh, this is a time for listeners who are not personally in grief to think about, well, who do I know that might be in grief? Um, I had friends over these years tell me, well, uh, my husband addressed the cards and I signed the name, wrote a little message inside, and I just can't face sending cards. And I said, well, the Hallmark police are probably not going to find you. (laughs) You do not have to do that, especially when it had such meaning. And then some people go, well, I don't know who some of these people are. They were from my wife's work. So I, I really don't know some of these people. And the other tragedy is, you know, we're now so scattered in this country. Um, uh, somebody may get a card back with deceased written on the envelope. Mm. And I had that happen and it just kind of that had never happened to me before. And I went, well, how come I don't know about this? Why? Why didn't I know about that? And there are people who are so afraid of saying the wrong thing, they say nothing. And I really wish they would not do that. Um, you know, and, and I've ta- taught some of my grievers to turn it back on them and say, you know, when we do these phrases, they're in a better place. You wouldn't want them back. They're out of their suffering. Just to take a moment and say, can I tell you how that sounds to me? And they may never have had any inclination of what those words sound like. And sometimes the greatest gift is just silent. Sitting there, sharing a, a, a coffee in Starbucks, no great, great conversation, but being present to that individual. I think it's also important to say the name. People get the idea if I say the name, that's going to make them feel sad. And my experience in all these years in this work is not hearing the name is what makes them feel sad. I'll tell you something I believe, and some of your listeners will go, did I hear him right? I'm not afraid of death. I've nearly done it twice with my heart, so I'm not really afraid of it. Uh, I'm not really particularly afraid of dying. I just hope I won't die alone. But I am afraid of being forgotten, Mm -hmm. that my name will stop. And I think that's becoming the great fear in our country. I will be forgotten. And that promise to people, I will say your name. I will remember your name. Um, And I think that's so critical to say, in the midst of our holiday, we will find a time to name those. And this was very true in the Kennedy extended family. They named the names. The Roosevelt's did the same thing on New Year's Eve. They paused just before midnight and made a toast to all those we have loved who are not with us this night. And, you know, it's borrowing from those things that become, become very important. One of my areas of research is presidential grief in the White House. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell a quick little story. Harry Truman was our 33rd president. Uh, Next uh, April 12th will be the 75th anniversary of him becoming president following FDR's death. 
and he, Harry Truman was a mama's boy. I mean, he was Martha Truman's son. And in 1947, she died. Well, Christmas is coming, and Harry Truman knows one thing for sure. He cannot go home to Independence, Missouri, and Mama Truman not be there. He cannot pretend any of that. Mm. And so he decides to stay in Washington. And uh, the benefit of that was all the Secret Servicemen got to be with their families. Uh, the reporters got to be with their families. But he, he invited all the Trumans in Missouri to come spend Christmas in the White House. Now, he had to work at his emotion. But uh, on midnight on Christmas Day, he took out his diary and he wrote these words, which I hope some of your listeners will lean into. It was a pretty good Christmas, all things considered. It wasn't the greatest Christmas, but it was a pretty good Christmas, all things considered. And actually on Christmas Day, Harry Truman, the president, went to Bethesda Naval Hospital to spend time with wounded soldiers. And not just, hi, how are you? Good to see you. But to spend time with them. And for some of them, that was the most amazing gift of their lives. The president came and sat down next to my bed and talked to me as if we were friends. So, yes, it was a tough Christmas for him, but um, it was a pretty good Christmas, all things considered. And quite frankly, some years, that's all we can hope for. And one of the things you advise in your book about a Decembered Grief is to write a year-end letter to your deceased loved one. What's yes. what's the purpose of that, and what should go into that? Well, you know, uh, our culture has lost so much of letter writing. Uh, we send emails, we send texts, that sort of thing. And the letter writing is a chance to sit down with your fingers holding a pen, coordinating with your brain. And it's a chance to put in writing um, some thoughts that you, maybe you can't get the words around initially, but it takes just a couple of moments. And I tell people, if you jumpstart, just dive into it, uh, it will show up and catch up with you. And one of the things I urge people is in that letter to offer a gratitude. Uh, I, I found this quote, this is new to me, but maybe not to some of your audience. It's by Evans Vallant. How lucky I am to have known somebody that saying goodbye to is so hard. How fortunate I am that I love someone that makes saying goodbye so extremely difficult. And sometimes we just need to offer those gratitudes. A colleague of mine is a big believer in grievers offering three gratitudes every day before they go to bed. Because and, and Irving Berlin wrote about this at the height of World War II. And I fall asleep counting my blessings. If you're worried you can't sleep, just count your blessings instead of sheep. And sometimes we need to say, I was blessed that I had a father and mother who brought me into this world, who made sure that I got a college education, who sacrificed. So the first child in the family to ever go to college could go to college. And expressing those gratitudes becomes so very important. It may be even a thing like 
I'll never forget the Christmas gift you gave me that took my breath away. And sometimes our brains just, it's like priming the pump, taking that pen and just writing, writing those words out. Um, Sometimes I tell people to put them in an envelope, put your address on it and mail it back to you. Uh, Some people are afraid, well, what if somebody sees this? Well, that might be possible, but it also might give them an example. You know, when I have a loss, I'm going to write a Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve letter to my loved one. Um, You know, I I, I do not believe they're, quote, gone. I I dislike that word enormously. Um, And I think they're still here. They're still with us. And there come those incredible moments sometimes during the holidays uh, when, you know, it's like the the curtains get pulled back just a wee bit and, and they're there. Mm-hmm. There's some aspect. It, it could be something. It could be a recipe. It could be the good silver. It could be, you know, something. Or hearing a laugh going, you laugh just like dad. I, do you know you laugh like dad? Well, nobody's ever told me that. And those importance, I, I like to say a person's not gone. So two things happen. One, you stop saying the name. And number two, you stop telling stories about them. That's when a person literally is gone, mm-hmm. but not until then. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And Harold, on our show, we always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? And you must just be filled with these. We've already heard so much great advice from you. But what is it that you wish someone had told you about grieving around the holidays when you first started studying grief that you wish they had? Yeah. You know, what I learned is each death is separate. For example, when my dad died, uh, then we were into the Christmas season. Oh, my Lord, what are we going to do? Because he always played dressed up as Santa Claus. Um, everybody knew it was Papaw, but yet we all played along. And and then when my mother died, I thought, oh, I've lost a parent, so this is going to be a rerun of dad's death. Mm-hmm. And boy, it wasn't. And then when my sister, who's 12 years older than me, when she died, I thought, this is going to be a rerun of mom's death. And um, I went to her room in the hospital at Christmas, and, you know, they said she, she won't hear you. And I go, well, I don't believe that. And my sister loved Christmas music. So I decided to bend over her and sing in her ear. You know, Santa Claus is coming to town. Grandma got hit by a reindeer. And, you know, people were like, she doesn't hear you. She doesn't know what you're saying. And I'm like, how do you know? Mm-hmm. And at least I tried in those moments to see her so unlike her. Uh, I wish somebody had told me, go ahead and sing. And if it bothers somebody else, that's somebody else. Uh, One other thing I would say that I've learned is I tell people to look at their thumbs and they're like, why do you want us to look at your thumb? And I said, well, get a good look at it. Yeah. Do you know there's seven and a half billion people on planet Earth? Okay. And do you know the FBI says no one's thumbprint is like yours? And they go, and I said, well, if your thumbprint is unique, your grief print 
your grief print will be unique. Mm-hmm. And anytime somebody tells you you're not grieving correctly or they're in a better place, just twist your thumb where you can see it and wiggle it. If your thumbprint is unique, and it is, your grief print will be unique, especially during the holidays. I can't imagine that that we laughed as much as we did when we're talking about grief. You make it seem like it's A normal. Part of life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which it is. It is normal. Yeah. I've learned from thousands of people the gift to me was they're saying, So you don't think I'm crazy or losing my mind? No, I don't think you're losing your mind. And normal covers a lot of things, especially during the holidays. Well, Harold, we thank you so much for your wisdom. Thank you. Our our guest has been grief crisis consultant Harold Ivan Smith. Again, he's written many books on grief, great books on grief, including A Decembered Grief living with loss while others are celebrating. And his website, haroldivansmith.com. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. 